in progress. Got it. I got it. You got it. So we're both recording. I'm not recording. It's, I have to click a button that says got it when recording is in progress. Oh, well, that'll keep me honest. So everybody's got to sign off. Everybody's got to know. Okay. Well, that's fine. Uh, since we're about to put this on the World Wide web, including, including Spotify, including Spotify, we're back. We are back. I, and not to give to... the Swedes too much credit. Okay. Cause you know, I'm not, I'm not super happy about the situation, but it does matter to our numbers. It does. Of course it yeah. does. Yeah. Of yeah. course. It does. Don't, don't say, of course it does. As, as, though I'm, as though I'm the paper boy. Oh, that's obvious. <laughs> of course it does. Okay. Well, so anyway, uh, I was looking at our numbers. We're, we're a little bit up. We're a little bit down, depending on what you look at. You can beat the numbers into submission and have them tell you anything you want to hear. It was Benjamin Disraeli. The about you've probably seen several um, uh, miniseries on BritBox, uh, Acorn TV, uh, Hulu UK. Uh, <laughs> about uh, the which British, is my favorite <laughs> British Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Disraeli who was uh, a Prime Minister during the reign of Queen Victoria at the height of the British Empire and uh, he said there are three kinds of lies there are lies damned lies and statistics mm, that's good yeah yeah so uh, all I know is uh We've got a listener in India. We got one in Poland. That's fantastic. Welcome. And listen, I, I'm uh, I'm very sorry. I I honestly didn't know how to pronounce Chiwetel Ejiofor, um, but that sounds like the right way to say it. And uh, he's he's a very good actor. I never saw Twelve Years a Slave, but I mean, didn't did he win an Oscar? Or was that Oscar so white and so? He didn't win. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Amy Poehler had that great joke at the Golden Globes about 12 years of slaves. She said, well, never mind. You can look it up. It's on YouTube. It was, it was funny, but he's a terrific actor. He's been good in a lot of different things. He was in a Woody Allen movie. He was in, uh, he was in the Firefly movie. He was the antagonist in that. And he was great. He was really, really great. I thought, in many ways, I, I was more sympathetic to him than I was Mal Reynolds. By fan favorite Nathan Fillion. I know you haven't I, seen it. It's got a spaceship <clears throat> in it. But Tirza I know. can probably Tirza recite it. the entire movie by, by heart. He was in The Martian, which also had a spaceship in it. He is a fiend for those spaceship movies. Yeah, he is. He was in The Martian? Yeah. I, I never saw that movie. I heard it was good. It is good. I can't believe you haven't seen it. It is good. Well, figure it's not on any of the streaming services I have. Can't believe you've seen it. Did you Did you see it dubbed by um, Hugh Bonham? Hugh Bonham Hill? <laughs> Hugh, Hugh Bonham Carter? <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, we've got serious stuff to talk about. That's right. This is this is no fooling. It's a problem out there. We ain't got time for these shenanigans. Nope. All right. Producer Jack. Play the dancing Kramer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the dancing Kramer. You know, I don't really uh, take uh, take as much credit as I might uh, for having composed that myself on GarageBand. Producer Jeff is also very good on the ones and twos. No. Um, uh, and I'm not the producer. Jackson is. Oh, but like a music producer, the guy who... Oh, sure. No, I am... Uh, I am the Phil Spector of the Managing Expectations podcast, which reminds me. Howdy! Welcome to this uh, latest episode of the Managing Expectations podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Winger. With me, as always, is the aide-de-camp, Brian Grimm. Howdy, Brian. Howdy, Jeff. Great to be with you today. Oh, man. Uh, have you been to, uh, have you been to the store? The store? Uh, uh, uh the, uh, the, the grocery store, uh, the, uh, a big box, uh, membership club store. No, I, Amazon delivers all my stuff. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, have you noticed, uh, some things not being available on Amazon? I, I've noticed that uh, the coffee table that Sarah and I ordered no less than eight weeks ago is still saying uh, delivery update coming soon. So you're getting a new coffee table, what, to burn in the fireplace this winter when everything else <laughs> falls apart? All right. So this this week we're talking about the supply chain, and I think it's an important conversation to have even if it's not as much fun as some of the conversations that we've had recently. So I've never made any secret of the fact that I at one time worked for American Airlines in DFW. Uh, we, uh, I worked there from, um, uh, part, I don't know, sometime in 1999 to like early 2001. And in, and, 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 and I'll, I'll make a long, I'll cut to the, the chase here. The American traveling public doesn't understand airplanes, the airline industry. They don't understand hub and spoke. They don't understand anything, generally speaking. Uh, business travelers are a lot savvier than vacation travelers, uh, but it is a situation where people want to get on the magic tube and they want to get off in the new and exciting place that they're going to, okay? Um, and that's all that matters to them. And it was pro probably the worst job I ever had. Uh, it was a job where I got yelled at every single day. Because among other things, you would have to tell people that there was a weather delay and that there wasn't an airplane for them to get on at the time that their boarding pass said that they should be able to. Um, 
and then they would like look out over 10 miles of cloudless blue Texas sky and say, tell me again about the weather delay. Well, I see all these, I see all these airplanes. How can I can't, how come I can't get on that one? Also that <laughs> I was just going to say the weather delay was in Chicago or some other town, but you know, but you get the point, right? Yeah. There's all these other airplanes. Well, let's just get in that one. I mean, it's not, you know, I was just um, sitting there. Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of things that because of the incredible efficiencies that have built up in a capitalist system, people don't understand. They take it for granted. And so if you want green beans for dinner tonight, you expect to be able to go to the store and get green beans, maybe fresh, maybe frozen, maybe canned, right? But something's going on. What have you heard about it? What have you heard? Well, I'll tell, I'll tell, I'll tell you what I've heard. But what did you hear? <laughs> so I was talking to this guy, see. Um, so there are delays and shortage in, all, I mean, all over the place in all, um, in all kinds of different products and i think it's it's i think it is true in things beyond uh the edible so you know when i mean mrs winger and i and this was uh so we put in new floors this year but it took six months to get them to us mm -hmm. uh we bought before the price, we happened to buy before the prices went up, but there was a huge delay in getting them to us. Um, you know, it turns out that our circumstance was such that, you know, we could, you know, wait it out. It's the, the, the folks from uh, Architectural Digest weren't coming right over. I mean, they were willing to reschedule. So thank we, we just lived on concrete floors. It's not the first time and it won't be the last. But. I talk I, I talked to somebody who's in the car business. Um oh. and he and he handles uh fleet sales for the Ford Motor Motor Company. And he said um henceforth referred to as Ford. The FMC. <laughs> he he said that uh the the supply chain problems have been disastrous for the car industry and, and you see that used cars are cost as much as new cars right now and there are it's very difficult to get your hands on a, new, on a brand new car um and he said that you know there are fields that are filled with cars that are built but are missing the computer chips that they need but because they're union shops they kept building these cars because they had to keep the lines going so they kept building them and they kept building them, but they were missing key components. And so they just shipped them out to a field and parked them in a great big open field um, and figured, well, once we get the chips, then we'll install them and get these cars on the road, get them delivered to where they need to be. He said, but the problem is now that you've got a field filled with all these cars that are missing the chips, you can't get to them to service them to get the chips installed once you get the chips because you've got other people that are screaming, no, I want those chips installed on these cars that are on the line. He says, so you have these fields filled with these newly built cars that are just sitting there 
and they're deteriorating because they're sitting out in the weather. Um, the, the tires are shot because they've been sitting there for six months, 12 months. Uh, the mice and rats get inside and start eating the, the bits, the electronics. And he says, and uh, uh, if you do get a handful of chips, you need to install them on these trucks that were ordered 18 months ago. He says, you have no way of getting to those trucks. You can't get to them. They're so deep into the field. You, I mean, you can't, you can't move all the other things to get to them. Okay. That, that is a crazy heck of a problem. It is. Uh, and uh, he was talking about the chips. He said, you know, you've got, he was, he oversimplified it. He says, you've, you've really got like three tiers of, of computer chips. Uh, tier one goes into the latest and greatest computer stuff. Uh, tier two goes into like smart TVs and, and, and things like that. He says tier three goes into automobiles. Typically um, it doesn't need to be the fastest chip out there, the, it, it, but it's gotta be a, a good solid chip. He says, and so, uh, but when the pandemic hit, chip production stopped. Um, and then once it started going again, um, Americans had to buy electronics, webcams, laptops, because kids were homeschooled, being homeschooled, people were working from home. Uh, they were getting stimulus money. Uh, most of them went out and bought electronics. And he says, and so all the tier two and tier three chips got pulled into, into that market. A guy I work with who has no right to be um, so frivolous with his money um, took his stimulus check and bought a uh, high-end uh, Apple Watch with a OtterBox guard. Yeah, yeah, That's... him and probably him and other ten million people did probably did the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I only know about him. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and he was saying, and so then, and then he was telling me about the rail lines, um, that, uh, let me, uh, let me, well, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, is this more about the electronic? I mean, the chips with the rails. Okay. Because, because the wall street journal yesterday, um, had, it, had, had the following, uh, article cargo piles up as California ports jostle over how to resolve delay. And it is a mess. It is a goat yeah. rodeo as, as the shipping lines blame the ports, the ports blame the truckers, the truckers, you know, are, are you know, the, and, and blaming the rails. I mean, everybody's got a scapegoat in this thing. So uh, as as uh, some of our listeners may have heard, there are cargo ships, those huge cargo ships, those gigantic Captain Phillips cargo ships backed up off the Pacific coast of America. So the port of Los Angeles and the port of Long Beach are, the, are, are, are two of the biggest ports, and, and they are the biggest ports on the west coast you you also have uh seattle vancouver and um uh the weak suck as they would say on the farm uh portland the port of portland uh but this article focused entirely on la and long beach and um nothing no, nothing's working right 
there was um, there's pressure to operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, which is not done. Um, and they're saying, well, even, okay, so if we here at the port did that, great, but we don't have the physical space to put the containers because the truckers aren't doing it. Mm-hmm. And if the truckers did it, then where are they going to take it? Um, there was, um, uh, so, so, uh, one union representative says congestion won't be fixed until everyone steps up and does their part. The terminal, the terminal operators have been underutilizing their option to hire us for the third shift. But then you get in the other thing because night shifts are less popular. Uh, Drivers who pick up loads late at night don't always have a place to put them. Truckers might have to park a box in a drop yard and then deliver it later when the destination warehouse is open. He says the biggest issue is probably comes down uh, to labor. Uh, So again, there is this, there is a, there is a sense that Americans, I, I, I'm not exactly sure how to put it. I mean, I think that there are Americans who are willing to work, work hard, work physically, uh, do these demanding uh, jobs, but then there are also many Americans who are not mm-hmm. willing uh, to take these jobs. And it's, they're having a hard time. Uh, apparently, at least in the short term, an insurmountable tr- problem finding, getting the people who will do these jobs um, into the actual occupation or vocation. I saw a thing a few months ago about, uh, you, you know, how um, different labor. Uh, d- different ethnic groups will come to the States and they kind of take over a business like Vietnamese mm-hmm. nail shops and Cambodian donut, uh, um, donut shops, uh, Korean groceries in the cities. Right. Um, apparently a ton of Sikhs from India are coming to the States and they're like becoming truck drivers. Those guys are like driving like crazy. It becomes it becomes weird and political when they're like, "Well, why are you giving that job to a okay? I shouldn't be doing a voice. I shouldn't be doing a southern voice." Many people wonder why that job doesn't go to an American, and I and I think that there are truck lines who are saying, "Find me an American who wants that job." Yeah, I was I was speaking to somebody recently and just talking about the job market, and uh, this this particular person worked in oil and gas, and she said that the uh, the industry is is really aging out. Is that you don't have um, a, a young group that have that has been able to fill those jobs, um, and so they. I mean, these are oil and gas industry for for many has been very lucrative. Um, for a lot of people, it has been, um, and there's some some good jobs there that you are able to make a good career at, um, but the average age is in the late late fifties. Um, that's going to, that's going to be a problem in 10 years. Yeah. 
and it's not a new problem. It's one right. that has faced American manufacturing previously. Uh, I was looking at a copy of uh, um, Mrs. Winger's copy of David Halberstam's book, The Reckoning, that he wrote in the mid 80s, I think 86, maybe 87, but I think 86. Um, Halberst Halberstam, who we've mentioned uh, previously on the Managing Expectations podcast, uh, had been a reporter of, for the New York Times, had uh, a very interesting career up until he went to Vietnam, and then he really made his bones reporting for the Times in the uh, early, early to mid-60s. Uh, so uh, Halberstam wrote a book called The Reckoning about Ford and Nissan and how Japan became the industrial leader of the world. Okay, so it's a little bit dated, but it saw stuff coming, like the rise of the Koreans, and it explained how in the 70s, the Americans had just given up small cars. It was like, okay, fine, we can't make them as good or as fast or as cheap, and we certainly don't make any money on small cars, so if the Japanese want to build small cars, we're going to let them. If the, if the Germans want to ship in Volkswagen bugs as as much as they ship in as well as their luxury cars we can do that too and 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 so they were they were like that but um when they stopped building small cars they and and the more jobs started to drift over well they didn't drift they were um allocated to factories overseas because why would you pay an american twenty dollars an hour in the mid um 80s when you could pay a korean three dollars an hour is really mm -hmm. what it came down to the manufacturing guys had lost out to the finance guys who just looked at numbers on a spreadsheet mm -hmm. and so they stopped they they didn't need as many people and so they stopped hiring and as the more they didn't hire, the older and grayer the, the factory floor got. So they've, mm -hmm. they've actually had to deal with that before. I'm sorry, that was a long interruption. I apologize. Yeah, well, this goes back to what I was, uh, the conversation that I had with the guy who worked at Ford, because he talked about the rail lines um, and especially the, uh, a gas transport too, that the, you know, these are, there's not a young group that are coming in to fill these jobs. A lot of these guys, they said, you know what, I'm so close to retirement. I'll just take it right now. And so there's, they're not there. They're not there to transport the fuel or they're not there to transport the goods from uh, for that last mile uh, as they say. So it's a, it's a big problem. He also talked about uh, the rail lines that you've had to, you, they had to take so many boxcars off the tracks that were filled with goods because things shut down. There wasn't anybody there to receive it, so they had to take it off the tracks. And he says, but now that they've gotten the railways back open again, they're running you know, at 100%. But in the meantime, you've got all these boxes filled with goods that are set off to the side. And he says, in order to stop a track, to shut it down and get those things back on, it is a tremendous waste, or not a waste of time, but it takes up a whole bunch of time and people are screaming for their stuff. And so... They're like, so they're just letting those trains run and the stuff is just sitting off to the side and maybe they'll get to it. 
He says it's, he's, he said in his estimate and the people that he talks to, it's going to be at least two years before this gets settled, uh, gets all worked out. Really? <laughs> and that's, that's not even if something else happens. Yeah. I mean, that's like if, if America and the world gets a break for the next two years. Yeah. And do you see that? Uh, one final thing about the chips. Um, he said that uh, uh, everything has gone touchless. Uh, paper towel, dispensers, faucets, uh, you know, doors, uh, soap dispensers. And, you know, there's been these, these mandates that have come out that, you know, all state and government facilities have to switch over to touchless because they don't, you know, they don't want people getting sick and they don't want people touching stuff. Um, he says, but all that stuff requires chips and it's all the, like the tier three chips that go into the touchless faucets. Yeah. And it's, yeah. It's, and that's, it's, it's the low level stuff, but there's, there's incredible competition. Yep. Okay. And this, this gets off into a, another geopolitical thing, but like the world's leading, do, do you know the, which nation provides the world with the most computer chips? Vietnam? Taiwan. Which is either its own independent country or a renegade province of the People's Republic of China. Um, Ah, They'll get that worked out. (laughs) (laughs) It's not not funny. I mean, you know, it's pure. I I, uh, used to work with a woman from Taiwan and and she said that they the Taiwanese have an expression. She says if. If, if everybody in China spit, Taiwan would drown. I mean, because one point, if you think about it, 1.1 billion people is kind of a lot. A billion of anything is kind of a lot, especially people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we're describing in an, okay, so, so sometimes it's, you can't get the thing. And maybe it's a transportation problem. Maybe it's like actually, I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, I mean, sometimes like at the grocery store, whatever, crops go bad. Uh, but, but more frequently, I mean, um, typically the, I don't know what you would call it, the agricultural industrial complex is big enough and, and savvy enough that a drought isn't going to mean you, you, you can't have strawberries. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if, but the strawberries literally have a short shelf life. And so if they end up sitting on the, a truck uh, in extremes, in the, uh, you know, they're going to, they're going to go bad. Um, so, so sometimes you can't get the thing. Sometimes it's transportation and that could be a number of things, right? It could be you don't have a truck driver. We've already talked about ports and uh, uh, rail. Uh, we've talked about, um, uh, you know, labor, somebody at the warehouse, okay? So he, here's the thing that may be happening and Scott Galloway uh, bangs on this drum relentlessly. But I mean, if it's not a great job, 
you may have to make less on your bottom line and pay a guy making $15 an hour, $20 an hour. Um, somebody making $10 an hour may have to make $15 an hour just to be worth it, just, just mm -hmm. to make it worth it. Uh, and there are a lot, there's a lot of talk and I've heard people other than um, Professor Galloway uh, talk about front, uh, frontline workers who are getting an earful about, you know, being out of stuff or, you know, why isn't that guy wearing a mask? Why is that guy wearing a mask? You know, just all sorts of knucklehead stuff. And you think, is it worth it? I mean, you know, and so th there would seem to be perverse, th there seemed to have been in place for a while, uh, perverse government incentives, which would have people say, nah, man, I'm not going to go get yelled at about masks when I can, you know, make more money on the, you know, with, with unemployment as it is currently coming. I don't mm -hmm. think that's true of everybody. In fact, I know, I, look, Mrs. Winger was making more money. So she was furloughed from her job. And uh, she was making more money not working than working. But when, when called, she returned back to work, you know, uh, and, and there right. are many reasons for that. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, you would, you would think that that can't last. Uh, so Ben Stein, he was the actor who, uh, was most famous for uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He was the uh, boring teacher who goes, Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. I don't know. I, I only saw that movie once and I hated it. Anyone? Is that what it was? Anyone? I think so. Yeah. Anyone? Okay. Um, so his father was an economist at the Nixon White House. Uh, and Stein's law is that which cannot go on will not go on. Mm -hmm. Did you know that? I did, well, I've heard that law, but I didn't realize that it was uh, Ben Stein's father. I know that Ben Stein, he was a professor, wasn't he? I mean, he wasn't, he didn't just play a teacher in a movie, but he's, he's actually a very sharp guy. He's a sharp and, guy. Yeah. 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 Um, I've, I actually have a couple of his books. He, he had a game show on Comedy Central in the 90s. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel was his wingman. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it always, was that the, no, that was the man, the man show always ended with uh, girls on trampolines. Yeah, Adam Carolla and Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, and Jimmy Kimmel, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I, I wonder why they're not doing yeah. that now. Hmm. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? It is funny. That's such a winning formula. Anyway, um, uh, Ben. Okay, so anyway, you're saying that which can't go on won't go on. Yeah. Were you right? Well, no, and that that's that's all that I'm saying is that uh, that if 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 you've been furloughed and are making more money than you were when you were working when you were a a productive member of society. You've got to reason, well, this, yes, this is great. And I'm thankful that this provision is in place for right now, but it can't keep going like this. I'm going to, eventually I'm going to have to get back to work. Okay. I don't, I don't know if any, I don't know if everyone believes that. 
I don't know. I do think that we're describing what could be uh, illustrated like a, a, a bullwhip effect yeah. that like a, a, a small flex of the, of the wrist uh, sends kinetic energy through the, the, the length of the whip so that by, by the time it gets to the end, um, you get cr quite a crack and a sting, right? Mm -hmm. Bullwhip is uh, something that people can see in the Indiana Jones movies. It's something that uh, Indy uses against his foes and also to and, swing from things. Yeah, and to get out of a tight spot. <laughs> so, so a number of little things. So I need toilet paper and that's fine. Store's got enough toilet paper for me. You need toilet paper too. Okay, they got enough for that. But if we all get, but they get it into their head that um, if everybody, see, because here's the thing, not everybody in the world needs toilet paper on the same day. And so- I mean, that'd be, that'd be a different kind of pandemic. Well, listen, cholera and dysentery are nothing to, yeah. you know. Let, it's not funny, Brian. Don't want to don't want to be fast and loose with stuff like that. No, no, that'd make me want to run them, run. <laughs> okay, so. Um, when everybody, when everybody goes and buys toilet paper on the same two or three day span, uh, they know that something huge and bad is going to happen and you're going to run out and there's not going to be enough for everybody. And really, if you think about it, the world economy has gone from like, not zero because stuff was going on, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, food was getting processed and shipped and grocery stores were working and doctors and nurses were working and firefighters are getting gas. And, you know, I mean, there was a measure of, of economic activity, but I, you know, I, I'm just making a number up, but I mean, it went from a very, very low number to like 110%. So you say, well, how can it be 110? It's like, well, because it's like in Hunt for Red October when he says, you know, I need 110% on the reactor and says, that's not recommended, Captain. And what did he say? Do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, give me 110%. So, so I mean, so not only are, do people need stuff, people also want stuff. And, and this is where I get back to the airline thing. People who don't understand any of this supply chain stuff can't figure out why they can't get what they want when they want it, which is right now, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I, mean, I mean, some people do, but some people don't. And I, for one, would be surprised if this isn't the year of the pumpkin spice riots somebody's going to walk into a store and try to get some pumpkin flavored thing. And they're already going to have 
transition to some other thing and um some lady in athleisure wear is gonna flip but we'll see a minotaur so all of this all of this comes as so, so one of the things about about capitalism as a system of which i'm a participant but not ultimately a believer i mean i, I believe in certain things right like i like the fact that the guy in the store is nice to you because his well-being depends on it right so he'll mm -hmm. say a greeting perhaps not because he's that concerned about you but just because it it, it injects um a layer of civility and uh courtesy into human affairs you know so that we're not just like grunting cavemen with you know bear skins and clubs okay um the other thing is uh capitalism does allow for efficiencies right i mean even even simpler stuff than like oh, i was i was lamenting uh a few episodes ago how i couldn't i don't know what i can't do i can't you know like i can't kill a lion you know or uh and you're like yeah okay but we we can sit in two different cities a thousand yeah. miles apart and talk to each other and that's pretty cool too so take that nomadic for foragers of the veldt <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. I don't think that was actually your, your way of putting it. Yeah, but no, no. Capitalism has allowed for some great advances in technology and convenience. Absolutely. Absolutely. But to become more efficient a few years ago, and I'm thinking like late eighties in, well, I mean, they started talking about it in the mid eighties into the nineties and beyond. They started talking about just in time delivery. And we saw the rise of UPS and FedEx. And when you absolutely positively have to have it there overnight because you know it's like a special widget or it's some life-saving medical gadget, okay? So, but overall, nobody, uh, um, manufacturers stopped storing material. They stopped storing parts, rather, we're building it on Wednesday, so it'll be delivered Tuesday night, right? And so they get things, whatever it is, and then they start putting it together. And in any way, it's all just like off the truck into the place where we're going to process it and out the door. And this has required greater logistics, and that's been augmented by you know, greater sophistication in information technology. Friend of the podcast, Tree, uh, works in IT and logistics. That's his day job. So all of these things came together. Like I, I was thinking after my hip surgery that, I mean, up and until like the 1970s, guys with a hip like mine end up like with a cane on a good day and sitting 
in a wheelchair like <laughs> like Barry Corbin in a, a, uh, No Country for Old Men uh, in his <laughs> ramshackle cat infested, uh, infested <laughs> you know, house. So it, it took a combination of medical science, anesthesiology, metallurgy. Can you imagine the metallurgy? You got to put something in there that's strong, but, but lightweight, because you got to be able to move it around. Oh, by the way, you can't use something like lead that'll poison a guy, right? So, I mean, all of those things had to come together to make it even possible what, what they're able to do now. And I think in a similar way, uh, just-in-time delivery required advances in lots of different fields. And that is only possible because of capitalism, right? So there's like, uh, there's like a, a line from Adam Smith. And again, I paraphrase, but I'll try to be more faithful uh, to Adam Smith than I was to you, that it's not, it's not because of goodwill that we owe our dinner to the, the tavern keeper who makes a sandwich and um, pours us an ale. Um, it, it, it's rather out of his concern for self-interest. And so it is with the guy who makes candles and the guy who sews clothing and, you know, the, I don't know, whatever. The, the, I, I, I may be veering into butcher and baker and candlestick maker um, territory, but, but it all, it all applies, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Those guys aren't doing it because they like Jeff Winger. In, in fact, my observation is they probably wouldn't like me if they met me. That's usually the case. Uh, one of the three probably would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can live with that. Um, so, so that's the thing with just-in-time delivery. Automakers have always, or, or at least for decades, um, uh, subcontracted parts, right? So during World War II, my grandfather wasn't called up because he was working for a company called Delco Remy. And I think Delco is known for other. Uh, AC, uh, AC, AC Delco? Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it would have become that. And what, mm -hmm. what do they make? Spark plugs? What do they make? Uh, I think, that, yeah, they make uh, electronics, spark electronics. plugs, batteries. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, he was valuable to the Americans just doing what he was doing here. Um, but anybody who, anybody my age who ever got into a Chevy saw on the frame at the bottom of the, uh, uh, of the door, body by Fisher, right? So that mm -hmm. was a company that supplied things like uh, uh, windshield wipers, right? I mean, lots of this little stuff. And so like a strike at the windshield wiper factory could bollocks, you know, the entire chain going up. So sometimes if they couldn't, labor, labor leaders would strike a smaller company to get the attention of the actual manufacturer. But 
then through the 90s, we see these chains getting longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, for example, I, I remember hearing um, a business speaker when I was writing for the newspaper in Portland. Uh, this guy was like, I can't make any money making televisions because he says there because the margins are so low so mm-hmm. um after the war after the war because i am as you know 95 years old <laughs> um after world war ii uh trying to uh, the americans helped japan rebuild and never mind the two atomic bomb devastations uh japan was in ruins okay and then the japanese had to apply themselves to um getting back to business uh and and you know the americans wanted them commercially strong but militarily neutered Mm -hmm. okay so so made in Japan, like the J- Japanese were making like cheap junk and it was and like toys, like they'd make toys and it would say made in Japan on it. And guys look down their nose at it. But then the Japanese kept getting savvier. And one of the things that they did, and this is highlighted in Halber Stamp's book, The Reckoning, is um, uh, that they would, uh, uh, the Americans sent guys like, w edwards deming who was all about quality he was all about quality in manufacturing and the americans didn't listen to their own guy Mm -hmm. um they're like shut up we're making more money than god and so we're going to keep doing what we're doing and then he goes to japan and the japanese were like hi yeah we can get behind it yeah um and there's this other interesting concept from, I don't know if it's Japanese philosophy or if it's just business philosophy, but it's, uh, oh, what's it called? Um, oh, come on. I really am going to hear about this. Uh, but it's, it's getting, it's not, it's not making. Kaizen. Uh, it's Kaizen. Of course it's Kaizen. I way to step on my line, Brian. I was, giving a pregnant pause so that I could come through with Kaizen. So it's getting better 1% a day, tiny incremental, but positive changes, positive movements, progress. So, so uh, uh, as opposed to like, you know, one day, uh, you know, we're using stone tablets and then the next day we've got the printing press, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a really great story about the uh, British cycling team that uh, used to be a powerhouse in the Olympics and, you know, in the world championships and things like that. But then they, they fell off. It just, they just weren't very good. And they had a very, very long time. And um, maybe we'll talk about this later on another podcast, but a guy was brought in to look for incremental changes and he got made small changes in their entire process. And then within eight years, they're, they're winning gold at the Olympics again, winning the world championships and things like that. But they, they changed everything. They got 
15 minutes of sleep. They changed the type of sheets that they slept on. They just made these very, very small improvements and things that they, you wouldn't think would be associated with performance. Um, but it really turned around that program. 15 additional minutes of sleep. What did I say? 15 minutes of sleep. Yeah. They were only sleeping 15 minutes a day. It's amazing. Sometimes I can't look, I'll, I'll misspeak on this stupid thing and then I'll, I'll hear it, you know, in post-production, which is what I call falling asleep to it. <laughs> by, by the way, uh, I thought the last one was just hilarious, stupid, but hilarious. Too. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. So, so then um, uh, the Japanese were making great cars. And then they started making other stuff, TVs. But then by the 90s, it was hard to find electronics, like home electronics that were made in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, more likely, you're going to find a Japanese company who's building stuff in like Indonesia or Malaysia, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the thing. And um, uh, I, I, you know, my, my, my Vietnamese friend, Chat Ma, was always like, you know, he, he would always like pay attention to where it was built. He really wanted stuff made in Japan because he knew it was high quality and like what a, what a shift in a single generation. Uh, Se Seiko, uh, the very prolific watchmaker. watchmaker. Um, they, they, you know, they make a lot of their watches in Japan, but they also make a, an awful lot in Korea. Um, same series. Uh, look virtually identical, but the ones that are made in Japan usually cost about two to three times more than the ones that are made in Korea. Yes, go on. <laughs> I like that logo. So the uh, so if there's a specific type of Seiko watch that you really are looking for. Um, you want to make sure that you see the made in Japan uh, stamp on it uh, because otherwise uh, you could be potentially paying a premium for something that uh, um, didn't cost as much to make. Yeah. So we're seeing manufacturing. Uh, we, we've seen manufacturing in Japan uh, get really well. And a lot of stuff went to China and that's been the hugest thing. And so for 25 years, the Chinese have been learning and getting really good at making stuff. And I certainly wouldn't suggest that something made in China was uh, cheap junk. But uh, 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 what, what we're seeing now is a growing middle class in China is starting to ship stuff overseas. So some mm -hmm. things now are made in other places. Vietnam's making a ton of stuff. Mm -hmm. I have boots made in Vietnam and I think they're great. They're terrific. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe, you know, I boots <laughs> made here in the States uh, would be worth the extra $150. But the, um, so, so these are boots from LL Bean, the longtime uh, outdoors, gear company they don't need to know that uh, i only go out of doors to get in my car 
Do you know what uh, my daughter called LL Bean? La Bean? No. <laughs> she said it's a, uh, it's the women's clothes from LL Bean are like Talbots for women who want to be outdoorsy. <laughs> Oh, that's more trenchant cultural observation from Baby Grimm. Yep. There yeah. you go. Well done. Talbots for women who want to be outdoorsy. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, I mean, they're great boots. They're great boots. They've held up. I've worn them hard. I wear them to work. And uh, for, for, for my day job, I, I don't have them on now, uh, I, though I am wearing L.L. Bean camp campsite moccasins no they're top siders they're top siders they're under the desk take it take it easy are they is there something that we haven't discussed about ll bean and their contribution to the managing expectation podcast i just i mean it's just who, who i get clothes from these days okay so um i have to digress um okay so 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 anyway so here's the thing vietnam's making a ton of stuff now and Vietnam is locked down. They, they weren't affected by COVID at all until this most recent Delta spike and it hit them hard right in the mouth. And so, I mean, like tons of people were dying and uh, it's like, I mean, it's shut down. I mean, it is after all, uh, as, as dear as the Vietnamese can be, uh, it is run by a Stalinist, dictatorship mm -hmm. so um when they want to shut it down they'll shut it down so anyway that's going on and then so this and so then that that has then affected the supply chain problems even further boy you got that right so uh so here's so what is uh what is the lesson to be learned everyone uh having heard us explain the supply chain the, the the fact that it's not it's not as though you're uh you have a cosmic right to go to the store and get what you want when you want it at the price you can afford um the moral of the story if i were to sum it up is um uh, stock up on canned goods and buy duct tape and bisqueen. <laughs> right. You think? Do you think? You think Ron Swanson would be affected by supply chain, or do you think he just builds stuff on his own in his backyard? Yeah, no, I think he would like use his lathe. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Ron Swanson would always be fine. He would always yeah. be fine. Um. Okay. So, so you got anything else on supply chain? That's it. Okay. Well, so, I mean, it's, it's more complex and it's, it's more of a thing. And so you need to be aware of it and you can go to ready.gov or redcross.org to learn how to put together a, a, a bolt bag or a, a, a go bag. Um, because, and that's just good. That's just good household management. That's just good stewardship. You got to be able to, either go or you got to be able to hunker down and both of those websites either of those websites will be able to help you do that yep. uh, in other news brian 
Mrs. Winger bought a new Apple Watch because uh, not, not so much for the upgrade, though she was happy to have that, but also because she broke her other one and um, it, the face is only responsive to the touch on about half of it at, a, um, at about a 23 degree angle uh, across, across the face. So um, I got it. Uh, I, I inherited it. And so um, it makes your battery, the battery goes down pretty fast. Uh, I can get it to go about 10 to 12 hours if I'm listening to podcasts because it always wants to tell me what podcast I'm listening to on my watch face when I really wouldn't need the podcast information going through my phone, my, my watch. No. Uh, the, the other thing is uh, it's taken to telling me when to stand, which is why I stood and showed you my quarantine 2020 t-shirt, my mm -hmm. Jocko Willink um, uh, t-shirt. That, that looks like that looks that logo looks like it's borrowed from a German auto manufacturer. Uh, it's not. It's the logo of a plague ship. It's um, in the old days. If you had disease on your ship, you would fly a plague flag, and it was it was this. Um, I saw a tweet that said that the cool thing about having an Apple Watch is is that you will feel it buzz, and you think, "Oh, cool, a text message from my friend," but it's just your watch telling you to breathe. Yeah. So it's telling me to breathe, when to stand up. Um, had an appointment with my therapist. She's a big believer in uh, breathing. <laughs> I'm, I'm big on breathing too. <laughs> well, uh, I was starting to be ambivalent about it. Ergo, ergo the therapist. The appointment. <laughs> so... Um, uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, it's, 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 so the Apple watch is funny. I haven't worn a watch in probably almost four years, three and a half years. Um, the, kid, the kids don't wear them anymore. And really this is just, um, an, an appendage to your phone in a way. Yeah. I, I find it's much more generous in the steps that I'm walking. So like if I just have my uh, phone in my back pocket and I'm walking around, it registers between two and three miles a day. But since, since I started wearing the watch, um, it's coming in way, way higher than that. So I can, it could be just because even when I'm sitting down, I'm doing this, I'm doing like, <laughs> like, Like I'm, I don't know what would that be like. I'm a, a mad cross country skier with his with his sticks with his poles. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that was another mile right there. I, I just got credit for a mile. Keep up the Man, good work. I, <laughs> so there was a there was an episode of South Park where Cartman starts taking like three um, protein. Like I think it's called like Mega Mass three thousand or something and. Uh, uh, he's getting it from GNC and he just keeps gaining weight. And he's like, man, I look so buff. <laughs> and, 
anyway, so, um, you know, my, my watch is recording me as taking all these steps. I convince myself that I'm so buff. And so I'm like eating a gallon of ice cream every single day because I can afford to now, even though I'm not walking one foot further than I was a month ago before I got a broken Apple watch. I'm exercising so much. I'm, you got to keep the fuel coming in. <laughs> That's right. I need the fuel. That's right. Hey, how do you feel about energy drinks? Um, <clears throat> I used to have probably one Red Bull a day when I was in construction. Um, but now it, you know, that's, that's, that's not good. That's not good for you. There's a ton of sugar in it. Is it because of the sugar, Uh, the sugar and, and, uh, caffeine and and things like that. And then, you know, I wasn't sleeping well at night and things like that. And so, um, I'll probably, I, I happen to like the taste of Red Bull. I think, I think they taste great. Um, and so I'll probably have one a month or so. Yeah, I just I just try not to to drink too much of it. I just everybody it's like, like, a, it's like a not it's like a nine on the Sarah Grimm scale. So ten being black tar heroin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> nine nine and a half. So nothing you want mama to catch you drinking. Uh, no, she truth is. So you're, you know, what I'm hearing is you're sneaking Red Bull. No, there, there's other things that, trust me, she does not want to see me drinking. <laughs> <laughs> trust me on that. Yeah. Um, no, she, I mean, truth, she doesn't, she doesn't really care. I mean, I'm sure she cares some, but it's not, uh, it's not one of those things. I just, Okay. Every time I, every time I crack one open, people at work act like I'm going to keel over dead of a heart attack. (laughs) This would be a nice time for you to say, Oh, Jeff, I have no idea why they would ever think that. My word. What a thought. (laughs) Oh, my heavenly stars. All right. Well, I, I just don't know what's so bad about it. Why is it worse? Why is it worse than drinking a Coke? Well, I think it's got like twice as much caffeine as a Coke. And then it's got. Okay, how much like, more caffeine does it have than coffee? Oh, a lot. You, you're, you don't know. I don't know. You don't know how, you don't know how energy drinks work. Add it to no, the but, I, but, but I know, I do know this. That uh, I that I, I wasn't sleeping well at night when I was drinking a, a lot of them, I was uh, more prone to uh, panic attacks. Um, at, t- at times, I would, you know, close my eyes and I would see uh, spots. So, yeah, flashes of light. <laughs> Okay. Um, I'm sorry that you watched paranormal activity while drinking Red Bull, but I would hear a rushing train in my dreams. But all that stopped. All that's gone away since I stopped drinking the Red Bull. 
All right. Well, listen, here at the Managing Expectations podcast, if you can tell me why an energy drink is going to kill me, I'd like to hear from you. In the meantime, we appreciate very much you listening, spending you spending some time with us. We try very hard to be amusing and informative and uh, worth your while. We um, are thinking of our buddy, uh, Chris Levine, and his winning and helpful refresher pop culture therapy podcast available on Spotify. Exclusively. Uh, you probably get it on Anchor, don't you think? He's an anchor guy. You remember Anchor? I think I told you about him before we went with Podbean. <laughs> Don't hear Podbean asking us to advertise for them, do you? But I digress. Chris Chris Levine's uh, terrific podcast is definitely worth ch- checking out. Also, also, All in a Dream Comics and Books in Denver, Colorado. Give Ray a call at area code 303. 303- Three 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 eight six one six. He can get you set up with the Silver Age comic, the omnibus bound volume of whatever um, series you're looking for. Uh, he's really um, quite something with it. And of course, Mrs. Winger, uh, uh, Mrs. Winger dot wife for putting up with me, but Mrs. Winger dot com for making the best masks you you can even imagine and i'll tell you what she she absolutely stayed by um cdc guidelines uh double layered with with room for a filter uh adjustable snug around the nose but nevertheless comfortable and stylish and they were great and they are a fraction of what people are still selling masks for Look, I and the, I happen to not think affected, not a, not affected by the chip shortage. And doesn't even require a level three chip, a, a tier three chip. Yep. You know, I may not have three tiers of chips, but I've got ninety six tiers. I hate that song. Do you really? Why would you hate that song? No, I was thinking Crimson and Clover. I hate Crimson. I, I kind of hate Crimson and Clover too. Yeah, ninety six yeah. tears is awesome. <laughs> yeah, ninety six tears is pretty good. Um, have you ever? Did you ever hear um, Steve Van? Oh, oh, when uh, when next we get together, I'll be able to talk to you about uh, the new Steve Van Zant um, uh, memoir. Uh, unrequited infatuations. Okay, let me try that again. Un- unrequited infatuations, the mem- uh, the, the the memoirs of a rock and roll consigliere, something like that. And so, uh, I am really looking forward to reading about Darkness on the Edge of Town because he swears. So, Darkness on the Edge of Town, Springsteen's what fourth studio album. Um, is my favorite record of all time. It's incredibly personal. Uh, it, 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 it has like all the father and son strife, uh, but it also has, um, I mean, just transcendent songs. It's got Badlands, it's got Promised Land. And Steve Van Zant swears 
that that record would have been so much better if only Springsteen had listened to him and he was like co-producing it. So I saw like the two of them. So they put out several years ago, uh, uh, songs from that recording session uh, in an in an album called The Promise. And they were on uh, 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 Letterman. And Steve Van Zandt says something like, it, it should have been called 70 Lost Conversations. <laughs> because he lost 70 cons con uh, arguments. 70 lost arguments. So, so he, he lost every argument that he had with Springsteen about it. So that's how it went. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks for listening to the Managing Expectations podcast. This has been great. Thanks for, thanks for hanging in there, folks. Uh, I'm Jeff. That's Brian. Peace and love. <laughs> <laughs>